It's good to see you all here on a Sunday morning. Welcome to Katusa First. We are a community of servants that love to serve the community. We do this through a number of ways, through our food and our clothing pantry and all the things that we do here in the community. We do have children's camp coming up next week, um, so be in prayer for that. Also, uh, after church, if we would all like to gather around the church ACs and lay hands on them, that they do not go out uh, during this heat, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I know there's so many people right now who have lost their heat, um, and so we pray for you if you've, uh, I mean, lost, uh, lost their AC. Yeah, I, I say there's a little bit of extra heat to go around, I think. Um, so no, okay, pray for rain maybe, that might be nice. Um, but we're glad you're here. If you're new to Katusa First, or it's been a while since you've been here, uh, we like to work our way through a book of the Bible at a time, and we do that so we don't skip the hard stuff. Right now, we are currently in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And if I could, uh, as you're turning there, just be honest as we usually are, this is, uh, I preached through a lot of the books of the Bible in the last 15 years that I've been preaching. Um, consistently through books of the Bible, this is one of the hardest ones to preach through. And the sermons have begun to feel repetitive. And that's because Ecclesiastes is repetitive. <laughs> it's like, you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? And it's just going to go bad every single day until you get it right? Well, that's what Ecclesiastes does. It just gets it wrong every single week, and then until the very last chapter where then it finally gets it right. So it's been a struggle to figure out how do we navigate a, a book like this. Typically, if you lived several thousand years ago, you would sit down and we would just read all of Ecclesiastes together, right? Then we might uh, have a discussion time afterwards, and we would just spend all day over a meal talking about what we had just learned. But in modern society, we've broken up our time of worship together into shorter time frames. We show up on a Sunday morning, and we don't have a meal together afterwards every week, and there's not the discussion that there might have normally been. So it's harder to break this book up into kind of bite-sized chunks. So for the next couple of weeks, we will actually be going a little bit faster than you might be used to me going. I know when we worked our way through the Gospel of Luke, that took almost two years. Uh, but I am hoping we will be able to get through Ecclesiastes rather quickly, and then for the rest of the year be in the book of Colossians. And I don't, I don't have a time frame, but I would love to see us be able to wrap up Colossians right around the end of the year, and then maybe next year start into a big book again where we can spend several years in it. Right? Right? All right. Let's go. Um, so uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is the author of this book, which is King Solomon, supposedly, he's using this character, the teacher or the preacher, whatever you want to call him, to kind of show what life is like if God maybe existed but wasn't relevant, which is very much a reflected in our culture today where everybody believes in God, but God isn't really relevant to their life, right? It's... 
It's something, like, I know there are people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to church. I haven't been to church in 20 years. Oh, well, what Bible, book of the Bible are you reading? Oh, I don't really read the Bible. I, it's boring. I don't like it. And, and I'm like, so this Christian thing that you said that you believe in, you don't spend any time learning about or reading about or growing in that relationship, it's... It's oftentimes just become a label that we slap on something to say, hey, when I die, I'll go to a good place because I said that word, right? And people might grow up in a Christian environment and they think because the environment they grew up in was Christian, therefore they are Christian. And we want to stress that being a Christian is when you have made the decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord over your life. When it comes to how you live your life, I would say the, the three big questions, and we'll look at those three big here at the end. Who am I? Why am I here? And what happens to me when I die? The place you go to try to figure out the answer to those questions are the places that you are putting your trust and your hope and salvation. And so if we look for those answers anywhere outside of Jesus Christ, then we are not a Christian. A Christian is someone who says that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords, kings of kings, that he came and he died on the cross for my sins. I have repented, and that word repent is important. We don't talk about it very often anymore. I have repented of my sins. I have turned from my ways, and I am choosing to follow him from this moment on. That is what a Christian is. But the author of Ecclesiastes is just kind of treating God as an, a philosophical idea. Like, sure, he's there, but he doesn't really matter. And because he views life that way, all these things kind of fall into place with that viewpoint. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he's repeating this theme that he's been trying to show the whole time. Time and death are essentially like the ultimate, you know, death and taxes is what we say. But in Ecclesiastes, you say, like, look, because of time and death, everything is out of your control. Nothing is actually what it meant, is meant to be, right? Riches won't make you happy. Relationships won't make you happy. All this stuff is just a big void. It's just throwing your money into a black hole, and eventually you're just going to die. And that's his theme for about 11 and a half chapters. And it can get kind of discouraging. We're going to try to have a little bit more fun with that this morning. Um, but chapter 7 is really what made me say, okay, we need to do two chapters at a time. Because I wasn't quite sure how to preach this one. Because what he's going to do in chapter 7 is he's going to give Proverbs. He's going to give some words of wisdom. But they're not like the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. These are words of wisdom from somebody who thinks God is maybe only slightly relevant to the conversation. So there might be some good basic advice, like you can get some good advice from non-Christians, right, regarding different things in life, but at the core of where that advice comes from is important. The core, the foundation is important. And so he'll say things like uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. If you got it, would you say, I got it? So just look at the verse little proverb he has. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Well, I think that's a good proverb, right? It's a, a precious ointment or perfume, right? And what they would often do with oil or perfume, if you stunk, you could cover yourself in a scent, and it was basically masking the smell of who you really are, right? 
You know, like you could just cover yourself so nobody knew what you actually smelled like. And he says, hey, instead of pretending to smell good and covering up the stench of who I am, it's better to have a good name. Character is more important than talent. Don't you, don't you believe that? Like, that's a good proverb. It's not in the Bible, but character is more important than talent. Ask Lance Armstrong, right? I have just as many Tour de France medals as he does. Because if your character isn't good, then your talent doesn't mean anything. So you can be really good at something, but eventually disqualify yourself if your character isn't there. So that's a good proverb. What could be so wrong about these proverbs in Ecclesiastes? And then he takes a really positive, nice, fun turn, right? He says, And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Oh, isn't this guy just a real fun guy to have at parties? Like, he's like, I'd rather go to a funeral than a party. It's like, well, dude, who hurts you, bro? <laughs> who hurts you? And then he keeps going. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And he just keeps going on. It's, it's advice. And I'll show you where I think he really takes a turn, and it just goes just out the window, right? Um, let me see here. Oh, here's another good one. Verse 21. I, I thought this was good. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. It's like, so if you hear somebody say something bad about you behind your back, don't take it to heart. Because you've said bad things about other people that you didn't really mean to, right? Um, verse 10. Why were the former days better than these? Uh, or says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. That's a, that's a good proverb. It means don't, hey, remember the good old days? You remember those good old, things used to be better in the past, right? And we do this a lot. And it says, hey, the past had its problems too. Like you're just looking back through golden lenses and you feel like, oh, things in my day were better. And our kids will do the same. They'll look back on their childhood and say, things were better when I was growing up. And so there's all these kind of pieces of advice. The one that I think is uh, a little troubling, let me see here if I can find it. Uh, verse 28 it says, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He says, I'm looking for good people in the world. If there's a thousand guys, I can find one good guy. But if there's a thousand women, I can't find a single good one. Right? <laughs> so maybe, maybe we're not going to take his Proverbs to heart. So what is it that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to show us through, through this preacher, through this character, as he's going on and on and lamenting all of this stuff, is he's trying to show that the foundation, how important that foundation is, because without God, yes, there is some good advice, but the well has been poisoned. Uh, Sam Harris is one of the... Uh, the he was called one of the new atheists, right? There was like these four atheists. They called them the new four horses of atheism. And uh, he still does like traveling and tours and debates and things like this. And atheism is not nearly as popular as it used to be. 
About every 50 years, it makes this new big swing into popularity, and, uh, and then all of a sudden it disappears, right? And there's a reason why. is because it's not a sustainable belief. It's not a sustainable belief. Now, Sam Harris is a neuroscientist. you got to be pretty smart to be a neuroscientist, right? Like, I can't even spell it. So I know in, there are areas where his advice would be really, really, really good. And I would actually want to take his advice on neuroscience. But because his foundation is not good, when it comes to the big picture of life, I'm not going to take his advice on certain things. And one of the reasons he lost his popularity is he's written several books. Um, he is a determinist, which is what happens when you are a faithful atheist. Uh, a determinist is somebody who believes that free will does not exist. He says, look, I'm, I, I know neuroscience. I, I know all of the stuff. I know the way the brain works. And you are nothing more than your DNA. Think of it like a computer, right? So there is a, a computer has a shell, and then there's software, and then there's a keyboard for, or a mouse for input, right? Now, if, you, if there is no God, then you're just that computer, right? Your body is the shell, your DNA is the program, and the computer is the, like, the situations around you is the input. And you would basically have no choice to how you respond to anything, you're essentially a slave and a robot to your DNA. Now, none of us believe this, especially when somebody says, sorry, I have a temper, uh, you know, I'm Irish. No, you're a jerk, and not all Irish have tempers, right? Like, you don't have to, if somebody tried to use their DNA as a justification for how they treated you, you wouldn't buy it because you're smarter than that. But then, why is it somebody so smart as Sam Harris who argues against God, but also argues for the idea that he has no choice whether he's an atheist or not. And I have no choice whether I'm a Christian. I'm just, it's just my DNA. I'm just a program, and just my input has told me what to say or what to believe. He writes books that he expects people to freely buy. But yet, he would say something so ridiculous as, I do not believe in free will. I have no choice in anything that I do. Why can you be smart, but not intelligent? I don't know. I don't know another way to say it, right? How can you have all of that wisdom on one aspect, but then totally fail when it comes to the big picture? It's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. If you get rid of God, things fall apart really, really quick. If you kick God out of culture, if you kick God out of your job, if you kick God out of your family, whenever you get rid of God, things fall apart really quick. And so the author of Ecclesiastes, or the New Testament says it this way. Maybe you're familiar with this way. That there's two different ways to build your house. If you were going to go and you were going to begin a, a new home building project, one of the first things they're going to do is come and check the foundation and they have to pour that foundation perfectly. You can either do all the work to have a good foundation before you ever start building your house, or you can say, you know what, just start building the house. We'll deal with the foundation later. That, that's not good. My, my brother, he has a house near a lake, and the house was beautiful. And all of a sudden, because it's near a lake, what happens to the foundation is it starts to move, and they have a swimming pool, and then that pool cracks, and then the water goes everywhere, and then their house is cracking, and, and then you've got to pay for all these pillars to be put in under your house 
because the foundation is the most important part of everything. The foundation of this church, the foundation of your life, the foundation of your relationships, the foundation of your home matters more than what color you paint the walls. And so as he's going through all of this, Scripture says you can build your house on sand or you can build it on the rock of Jesus Christ. Let's go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, and he's going to kind of sum up his kind of attitude towards life. Um, let's start with verse 15. He says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now you say, Caleb, I thought he was teaching this from a godless perspective. He just mentioned God. Told you, he's teaching it from a perspective that God exists, but he's not really relevant. And that term, under the sun, it's not under the heavens where God rules and reigns. It's under the sun where you're in charge. It's under the sun that all you have is you, nothing else, not under the heavens. So he's, uh, keep going. We'll finish chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that has done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he's going through all of these questions and he's trying to wrestle. And he says, even being smart and wise doesn't give me the conclusions to the big answer. And the big, the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And what happens to me when I die? Apart from God, a view from under the sun, he says, look, I don't know the answer. So just eat, drink, and be merry while you have time. Just do what you can, because I don't, I don't know what's coming. So you might as well just try to make the best of each day, which isn't bad advice either, is it? But it's kind of a carpe diem, seize the day. And there's nothing wrong with a seize the day kind of mentality. But I would also suggest a far better idea of seize the day is seize the eternal day. Live not just for today, which is kind of a humanist philosophy. This is all the life we have, so I'm going to live my best life now, right? I would say, this isn't all we have. This is just a dress rehearsal. There is eternity coming. And so I don't want to just merely seize the day. I want to seize the eternal day. And I don't do that by relying merely on my own wisdom. I do it by building my foundation on God. I was reading a great book this week. Uh, it's one of the ones the elders are working their way through. And it brought up Psalm 73. So I wanted to take you there with me. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 73. And here we see the author. He's struggling with many of the same things that the author of Ecclesiastes is going through. But he's going to have a diff very different answer. And it's incredible how your advice changes if God is the foundation instead of just your own wisdom and intellect. And so he's going to go through all these same difficulties, but he's going to have a different conclusion. 
Psalm 73. Um, and I'll read verse 1, and we'll just read for a little bit, and then verse 17 is where uh, I, I want to point your attention. Psalm 73. If you got it, would you say, I got it? Truly, God is good to Israel. See his presupposition. See his foundation, what he starts with. He begins, he's about to lay out a whole bunch of difficulties. But he begins with, God is good. Now, I don't understand my situations. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to deal with it. But I know this much. God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So he's looking at people who seem to have a great life, but they're wicked. And he goes, they're having the time of their life. Everything is great. I'm having a bad day. He's like, I almost stumbled because I looked at the arrogant people in the world. And I go, man, I wish what they had. I mean, we live in a celebrity culture, don't we? Like, we know more about the Kardashians than we do the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> Some of you are like, I know everything about the Kardashians, right? And this is what, this is like what in winning looks like in our culture. That's success. And then people like, they might not even be good people. It's quite possible they might not be good people. But people lift them up and they go, oh, I'm envious of bad people. This is the same thing he's saying. I got envious of people who might not be good. Uh, verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lottily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and the tongue struts through the earth. So not only are they against all the people on the earth, they're also against God, right? So he's just describing kind of the worst thing. And he's struggling because he doesn't know how to categorize this in his mind. Why is it bad people seem to do so good? And here you're trying to just love Jesus and love your neighbor. And you got sickness and poverty and all the stuff that follows along. But notice, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, I was trying to figure out how this world works. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's trying to figure out how this world works. I'm trying to understand the big picture things. I, I, it doesn't make sense to me half the time. I don't know what's going on. And it seemed too big of a thing for me to understand. And he says, until, until I went to the sanctuary. This is another way of saying, until I got on my knees and started to pray. Until I actually went to the source. Until I went to God. He said, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why is it the world is the way it is? And then God begins to give him that wisdom. So because he began with talking about God as his foundation, and then in his time of difficulty, he goes to God because that's his foundation. You know that's what hard times do, don't you? 
Hard times grind you down to your foundation. And you either try to just rebuild and dig another hole where you were, or you know it's time to pour a new foundation, Jesus Christ. Hard times will push you down and test and see what that foundation is. I want to close by today by simply asking for you to consider this week. What are your foundations? Can you have good friendships apart from Christ? Absolutely. You can have good friends. But if Christ isn't the foundation of a friendship, that friendship only goes so far. You know, I, I found it really, really hard as I gotten older. Um, because at the time when you tend to make most of your friends, high school, college, right? A lot of you, those are still the same friends you have today. It's hard to get friends as an adult. And some of you still have, like, I wasn't a Christian then. And as I became a believer, I just noticed that as I pursued Christ and stopped pursuing the party, all those friends left. The friendships that were built on the foundation of Jesus Christ tend to be the strong ones. Because we can actually talk to each other about difficult things. We can encourage each other. We both desire to see each other grow in our relationship with Christ. So there's encouragement and accountability. Marriages, you know, uh, I, do, I don't do tons of marriage counseling, but we do a lot of premarital. My wife and I have done premarital counseling for so many years. And we've seen so many couples and we tell them over and over and over again, it takes three for the two to become one. And every marriage that I've seen that is built and established on the firm foundation of who God is and His Word has a much, much better chance of making it than those who don't. Um, let me do a survey. How many of you have been married here for at least 20 years? Raise your hand. How many of you have been married for at least 30 years? Raise your hand. Have we have anybody here married for at least 40 years? Do you all know how rare that is? In our culture today, do you know there are very few people that you will see, that your kids, your grandkids will know, people who have been together for 40 plus years, unless, unless they're in church. You know, I used to hear all the time that, uh, oh, the divorce rate within the church is the same as outside. Uh, actually, upon further investigation, that, that is a totally myth. It's a myth. But the divorce rate within churches is much, much lower. Well, because, man, you want to figure out in life, there are a few decisions as important as, who do I marry? You want to have a good marriage. The foundation is Jesus Christ. You want to have good finances? It's not about having a lot in the bank. It's about having Jesus Christ as Lord over your finances. It doesn't mean you're going to be rich. It means you'll be okay no matter what. It means you'll be okay because your identity and your self-worth isn't going to be in your money. Right? So in all your friendships, your relationships, your work, all of that stuff, that foundation has to be laid and it has to be laid well. Like spend more time thinking about the foundation than what color to paint the walls. Fortunately, we just live in the culture that just says, we'll figure that out later. But this is why we gather together, to look through Scripture, to remind ourselves that a relationship built upon the foundation of God is one 
that will last. Because life doesn't make sense without God. There is no ultimate truth unless God exists. God has gone to a a lot of trouble to make himself known to you and I. You realize that, right? Like, for thousands and thousands of years, we've had his word. Before we had the completed Bible, we had his prophets and we had his apostles, who, if you doubted that they represented God, they would bring somebody back from the dead, right? Like, they could do incredible things. And we have evidence of Jesus Christ existing and rising from the tomb. This isn't a faith where we have to disconnect our brain, that we can love God with our heart, soul, mind, and body, that we can test and taste and see that God is good. It's because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. That is the foundation for us. It is the foundation for us. We celebrate that foundation every single week when we take communion. It is his body broken for us, his blood spilled out for us, so that we could be a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus, and begin to build a foundation for the rest of our lives. Amen? So I'm going to pray the band's going to come and have a time of response. After they're done, while they're playing, I want you to consider and say, God, have we kept you as the foundation of our marriage? Have we kept you as the foundation of our finances? That's a tough one, isn't it? No one, we don't like to talk about money at church, right? Um, but do I honor God with my money? Do I honor God with my marriage? Do I honor God at work? Because if I'm not, and, and it's, it's okay to answer no, I'm not, because if, I, if that's the honest answer, I have to be honest with myself in order to make the changes I need to make. And so we have to answer ourselves honestly and go, you know what? We haven't been doing a Bible study together in our marriage. We might go to church together, but we never pray together. We don't talk about any of those spiritual things. Can I tell you, I really want to encourage you guys. Pray together. Before you go to bed, I I know it can be late. I know you can be tired. Um, There's all sorts of little devotional books my wife and I have gone through, and we find them very helpful to have like a little paragraph that we read before we go to bed. It has a scripture on there, and it gives us something to talk about. And all of a sudden, she'll say, well, I need you to pray for this. And I didn't even know that was on her radar of things she was going through. And then I'm like, oh, man, because I have God as the foundation of the marriage. It makes for a better marriage. Or else I'm going to drift this way, she's going to drift that way. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, you go, I don't know, we just drifted apart. But if you spend time making God as the ultimate priority in all your relationships, you'll find as you grow, you grow together because you're growing towards a single thing. That makes sense?